Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the census, police reform, and taxes share the spotlight at the state capitol, Minnesota's summer tourism outlook, and former Gopher football star Daryl Thompson on his nonprofit Boulder Options. But first, my conversation with Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison on the Derek Chauvin verdicts and what's next for Minnesota. I guess I wanted to start with when you first heard that the jury had reached verdicts as quickly as they had. Initially, what went through your mind at that time? Well, I thought it was a hopeful sign, but uh, I just didn't know. I just really wasn't sure what they were going to say until the court read the verdicts. And as the judge read the verdicts, what was going through your mind at that point when it became clear how it was coming down? Well, I I felt a sense of um, relief. I felt a sense of satisfaction because this really was our goal. And uh, then I felt a strong sense of humility, like uh, felt humbled to be fortunate enough to be be in this role at this time. A lot of people that I spoke to uh, who were either watching it via live stream or listening to the verdicts live as they were happening said it was emotional for them. I'm wondering, obviously you were there in a professional capacity, but as a human being, was there emotion tied to this as well as the verdicts were read? Uh, yeah. It, for me, it was it was an emotional moment. It was a personal moment. And, um, you know, I mean... You know, look, I've talked to many, many people who who have had experiences which were very, very unfortunate with, with uh, police officers. I've also had people who've had great experiences with police officers, but I've had both. But for those people who, who've had uh, tragic experiences, um, you know, I've, I've seen them, they sat and cried in my office and talked about the fear that they have whenever they're stopped by a police officer. And, um, you know, I just, I really felt the, um, I really felt the, the weight of, of, of all those stories um, when I heard that verdict. You mentioned after the verdicts that you thought it was an inflection point. I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on that. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I hope it is an inflection point. I mean, there have been, I mean, you know, the, the Dante Wright case happened while we were in trial, you know, so I hope it's an inflection point. It seems to me that when the President of the United States and the Governor of the State of Minnesota are both urging the legislature to take action to improve relationship between police and communities of color, the video that Darnella Frazier shot that was a key part of the trial and a key part of sort of exposing uh, what happened in this particular case. How significant was that uh, to the state's case against Derek Chauvin? It's quite possible that it was indispensable. Now, there are certain, you know, but, you know, there are things that there is still a possibility that if we never had the video, the case could have come to light. 
I mean, the, the, the medical examiner did find that this was a homicide that would have caught some attention. And there were other people there. But I think that Darnella Frazier's video and the uploading of it were a critical difference. And there's just no, there's no uh, diminishing the tremendous impact of that video. You know, one of the things that sort of gets argued as we see cases like this in Minnesota and across the country, we, we've seen it here, obviously, a, a lot. Um, you mentioned Dante Wright. We're talking about George Floyd. There's Philando Castile. So I, I guess the, the question is, and it can be hard to um, maybe generalize something like this, but are people of color in Minnesota treated differently by police than white people? Is that your perspective? Well, we all have our own personal life experience. And uh, I guess I'll tell you a quick story, if you don't mind. Not at all. When I was in law school, some friends of mine had a very tragic experience with police at the Embassy Suites Hotel. Um, it was The case was called the Embassy Suites 5, and if you look in the archives, you'll find that case. Uh, sometime around 1988-1989 and so I got active and involved and um, I ended up getting on the news because of my organizing that I was doing with friends and I went to my law school class and I was a law student at the time and a friend of mine young white woman very nice person said I saw you on TV Keith and I said yeah she said yeah I saw you on TV and, you know, I had an experience with a police officer yesterday, and what the officer did is pulled me over, told me that the belt from my overcoat was hanging out of the door and that I should put the belt back in the car because that could ruin my coat if I don't. And he told me to have a nice day. She said to me, that's my experience with the police, Keith. What you're saying, I'm not saying I don't believe you, but I'm saying I never experienced what you're talking about. And I said, well... I hope you can appreciate not everybody has had that kind of experience. She said, yeah, I know it in my head, but it's hard to, for me to feel it in my heart because I've just never gone through that and never seen that. And so that's my way of answering your question. You know, um, from a racial standpoint, we live, in, we occupy the same space, but we live in different worlds sometimes. I can't help but wonder if, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that that was late 80s, if, if that person has a different, uh, th your white friend in law school has a different perspective now that we have body cams and cell phone footage. And I wonder if, if that is something that might be uh, convincing people otherwise whose own life experiences may not necessarily match those of people of color. Well, you know, I do I do run into her from time to time, and she did send me a very nice text message after the verdict. And, you know, I'm sure that her perspective has changed. And um, But, you know, it's, it's not even that she didn't believe me. It's just that, it's just that she'd never seen it, and there hadn't been the life she lived. And so hopefully now... You know, people are beginning to see, like, yeah, look, we, we do know this happened, right? I mean, if you look back to Rodney King, I think that was 1991, and uh, that was on video. 
Uh, but then, but then I think a lot of folks might have thought, well, that happened in L.A., so maybe that's not reflective of here. But the point is, it's a national phenomenon. Minnesota's not worse. Minnesota's not better. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's a problem that a whole country has to deal with. Which is why I'm glad that the president was addressing it in his address to Congress. I, I really, really want to commend President Biden for that. And one last question for the Attorney General Keith Ellison. We've got the uh, the trial for the other three officers involved in the death of George Floyd. Uh, we've also got sentencing for Derek Chauvin. We've got the Dante Wright uh, killing that we also will be dealing with. What's your message to Minnesotans moving forward here as we as we get past what you hope is an inflection point? What's your message for the state of Minnesota? My message is that if we insist upon equal justice, meaning that no one is above the law and gets to get away with committing crimes, and no one is beneath the law, and then we then the future is bright for us. But we've just got to commit ourselves to equal justice, and um, I believe that Minnesota is well able to do it. Thank you to my guest, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives. Who are we? We're your neighbors, co-workers, and friends. That's right, we live and work in the community too. Because of that, we're committed to making sure our electric services stay reliable, affordable, and safe. Throughout the state, Minnesota electric co-ops work independent of each other, but with the same goal, provide power to Minnesota. You have so many other things to worry about. Your electricity isn't one of them. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives, bringing power to the people of Minnesota. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is. Because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person. And if you're a book person, too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Congressional districts, taxes, and police reform among the issues getting lawmakers' attention at the Minnesota Capitol this week. MNN's Bill Werner is here with an overview. Scott, Minnesota will keep all eight of its seats in the U.S. House. The U.S. Census Bureau announced this week as it released population counts from the 2020 census. Acting Director Ron Jarman said if New York's population count had been only 89 persons higher, that state would have kept one additional U.S. House seat and Minnesota would have lost one of its House seats. Hamlin University analyst David Schultz predicts a court challenge. Even though he says it's very difficult for a state to win a lawsuit against the U.S. Census Bureau, but Schultz says the stakes are high. Losing a seat means losing representation in Congress, less of an impact in Electoral College, and it impacts billions of dollars in terms of federal aid. 
it's worth it to the state of New York to challenge. Even though Minnesota will still have eight congressional districts, adjustments to the boundaries of those districts will still likely be required because of population shifts within Minnesota. That is the legislature's responsibility every 10 years after each census. But for decades, the political parties have not been able to agree, and the decision has fallen to the courts. And Professor Schultz says... I think one of the easier predictions to be made is that this will ultimately fall to the courts yet again in terms of drawing the lines. And Schultz says redrawing of district boundaries will also likely happen for the Minnesota legislature. He says Minneapolis, St. Paul, and suburbs could pick up additional seats while rural areas could lose them, significantly changing the power dynamic at the state capitol. Battle lines for one of the most contentious issues of the 2021 legislative session now officially drawn after the Republican-controlled Minnesota Senate passed its tax bill this week. Majority Leader Paul Gazelka. Probably the number one thing about this bill that I think is really important is we're not raising taxes at the end of a pandemic on anyone. Democrats taking a much different position, supporting Governor Tim Walz in his push for an income tax increase on the wealthiest Minnesotans and on large corporations. St. Paul Democrat Aaron Murphy. It is the right time to raise taxes when we know our schools are underfunded and our classrooms are bulging with students, which is the case right now. But Rochester Republican Dave Senjum points to Minnesota's rank as one of the highest taxed states in the nation. We need people to come here. We need businesses to come here. We need to grow our economy. We don't get that way by, in my belief, taxing more. Democrats in the Senate tried to appropriate a Republican initiative, entirely eliminate state income tax on Social Security benefits, regardless of income. But Republicans would not go along with Democrats' plan for how to pay for it, namely a tax increase on those making more than a quarter million dollars a year on their investments. DFLer Ken Eakin from Audubon argued it would only affect about the top 1%, whereas... The tax on Social Security benefits hits a lot more people. But Laverne Republican Bill Weber countered additional tax on investment income will also hit farmers or small business people who are selling to retire. And so we want to then tax, put a surcharge on what is going to become that individual's retirement plan. That's the honesty of the amendments that were eventually defeated here today. Environmental groups this week claimed at least a temporary victory after the Minnesota Supreme Court ordered the DNR to more extensively review some issues surrounding the proposed polymet copper-nickel mine in northeastern Minnesota. Kevin Ruther with Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy says there's a big question whether a material called bentonite can adequately seal a proposed basin of acid waste mine tailings. We're very concerned that in Minnesota's northeastern wilderness, which is very water-rich, the dangers are just really high. Nancy Knorr with the group Jobs for Minnesotans responds, the only issue to be determined is if bentonite, a proven material, will be adequate, not whether a mine tailings basin is workable. In my view, this ruling actually um, upholds the fact this project will move forward. The legislature this week passed and Governor Walls signed a bill providing $7.8 million for expenses of Minnesota and out-of-state law enforcement during recent civil unrest in the Twin Cities. Cold Spring Representative Lisa Damoth. It's been disappointing some of the disrespect that our neighbors have faced and I'm glad that today we are reaffirming our commitment to the men and women of law enforcement. St. Paul Representative Carlos Mariani reluctantly suggested his fellow Democrats vote yes, but about two dozen did not. The need is real today to meet our public obligations, 
But I want to repeat that the need is real for police reforms. The People of Color and Indigenous Caucus demanded hearings and a vote on additional police reforms well before the fast-approaching end of the 2021 regular session. Minneapolis Democrat Patricia Torres-Ray says they don't want discussion left until end-of-session trading. You give me this, I give you that. Well, black people are being killed by the police. So no, not this year. We want hearings to happen now. We want the public to be involved. Governor Walls said he's preparing to burn political capital to get additional police reform measures into law. Basically, he said it will be part of end-of-session budget negotiations. The governor said to Senate Majority Leader Paul Gazelka, I'm sure he's going to want to have a tax uh, a conversation on the fifth-tier tax. Um, I'm going to make it clear that we can have that conversation but we're also going to have this conversation. Namely on police reform. Gazelka responded, I'm willing to talk to the governor about anything, but the conversation on uh, fifth-tier tax is that it's not going to happen. We're not going to do any new tax increases on anyone. And Gazelka said if the governor does not work with the legislature on ending his COVID emergency powers and on how to spend federal stimulus money, then Senate Republicans will pass a simple lights-on budget that would avoid state government shutdown. Scott? Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The spring-summer travel season is in full swing. Tasha Radel has more on the tourism outlook for Minnesota. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for a vacation. Sunny skies, travel, family, and friends. Here to talk about this is John Edmond, the state tourism director at Explore Minnesota. John, I know early signs are showing people are ready to hit the road, and many families are already making their bookings and reservations. You know, I know we have to keep in mind that we're still uh, amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, but how are things looking? Well, we're very optimistic about the summer tourism season here in Minnesota. Yes, it will be different than other seasons we've experienced in the past, but there is this pent-up demand. People want to get out, and they want to get out in remote places. They want to get to lakes and to rivers and to forests and and places where they can just relax. I know the COVID-19 pandemic really hit the tourism industry hard over the last year, even forcing some businesses to close their doors because they just couldn't make ends meet. If I remember right, the industry lost billions and billions of dollars last year. Yes, last year we lost almost $7 billion in sales now put that in perspective. We are a $16 billion industry, so nearly half the amount of sales our industry received was lost. And a lot of that uh, was particularly in meetings, conventions, events, a lot in the metro area, which is a huge part of the leisure and hospitality industry. People were not having events. They're they're not having, the, the sports is not there. There's not as many reasons, or at least there hasn't been. But now things are starting to open, I think, open up a bit. And people are getting optimistic about the things that they can do. And they're looking forward to doing a lot of those things, not just in greater Minnesota, but in metro areas as well. So, John, while we're moving in the right direction, we won't likely see a full recovery in the state's tourism industry until at least 2022. Is that fair to say? Yes. Overall, when you look at the way our industry was just a year ago, uh, robust, active, international attention. It's going to take a while for us to get back to that, probably for another year or two for us to truly get back. 
But for Minnesotans, there's a lot of great opportunities for people to travel, and people are doing it right now in their own backyard, and I encourage anybody that's listening to, to book your travel now because things are starting to book up. Thanks again to my guest, John Edmond, the State Tourism Director at Explore Minnesota. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Boulder Options has been mentoring at-risk children in Minnesota for nearly 30 years. Former Golden Gopher football star Daryl Thompson is the president of the nonprofit organization. He joins MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm. Well, it's our pleasure to be joined by the great Daryl Thompson from Rochester, Minnesota, all-time great gopher running back, and now for more than 25 years has had an impact in the community here in the Twin Cities as well as this home area of Rochester with Boulder Options. And first of all, Daryl, good to see you. Good to see you, Mike. Good to be out and about a little bit. Yeah, we're, we're getting there, right? We're getting there where maybe things are a little bit getting back to normal, and certainly part of what we'll talk about is the challenge that uh, that you and uh, your, your staff at Boulder Options and the kids that you help have had here over the last uh, year plus now. But before we get into some of those details, um, I, I think it'd be a, a good uh, service to just tell us about Boulder Options. Certainly, I know people close to you and around the community know about it. But for those that are, are wondering, Boulder Options, what's it all about? Well, I would describe Boulder Options as a, a youth program, a mentoring program, working with At Promise Kids. 10 to 14 years old is our sweet spot. That's where we sign them up and um match them up with a mentor. And we set goals, a physical goal, an educational goal, and one social-emotional goal that we'd like for them to work towards over the course of the year that they're in our, our program. And then um, the majority of our kids, um, over 90%, might actually join our alumni network. So we have probably a little over 400, maybe almost 500 kids in our alumni network officially. And probably unofficially, there's probably another 500 to maybe 1,500 kids that are in the program that are still connected to their mentor. So our goal is to introduce kids to a healthy lifestyle through activities, the running, the biking, um, our healthy habits curriculum. So that's what we've been doing for almost 20, we're going on 29 years, actually. I've been with Boulder Options here for 26 years. So it's been um, uh, a really, really beneficial program to the community. How did you get started in it? Great question, Mike. I was a volunteer, you know, just like um, what they have with um, Norris uh, at the University of Minnesota right now, Norris Wilson, a uh, a football player, He's um, he takes the gentlemen out and they do different activities. And uh, they didn't have a Norris when I was in school, but they would just call and people would show up. So I went out with Ricky Foggy and other guys to different places. And uh, Older Options is one of the, um, uh, the Minneapolis JCs had a program. And I was a volunteer and I grew to be part-time and then uh, 
um, when I got done playing pro football, it uh, ended up just pretty much absorbing my entire life. And here you are all these years later uh, with the impact to the community. How rewarding is it for you to uh, to be able to uh, to see the impact that you and your staff have on on these young people and, and, and watch them grow? Very, Mike. You know, I think a couple years ago we got, you know, just kind of thinking about it. And I get I get tired sometimes, like of everything that's going on in our community. But then I'll get a call. I'll get an email. Someone will come to the building that's a graduate of the program, maybe it's two years ago, maybe it's 10 years ago. I was at a Timberwolves game the other night and a lady asked me about a, a mentee that was in the program 20 years ago. And I talked to the mentor and, and the mentor was like, oh yeah, yeah, Elder's doing great. He's he's actually teaching school now. And I was like completely lost track of this, like this whole relationship. I said, that's not a, so I mean, those, those type of stories, um, uh, they're fun. And it's also, it keeps me coming back to work when I get a little bit, uh, run down with uh, just the, the trials that the life throws at us. Take me through an example of one, um, what kind of a youngster would get uh, the help that they need? How do you get connected with them? And then what would generally, obviously everybody's experience you know, is different, clearly depending on the mentor, but generally or typically what's the hope and, and how do they uh, get the help uh, and, and get connected? Well, Mike, it starts with a referral. So they get referred from us to us from a social worker or counselor in the school. And then we'd go out and um, sign them up at their house and we'd come back probably within hopefully a month and a half to two months with the mentor, set a few goals. And then we have what we call our curriculum. So speakers come talk about health, goal setting, nutrition, financial literacy, um, sexuality, all kinds of different um, topics that we cover over the course of a year. Um, and then we do activities on the weekend. So every weekend, well, probably three out of four weekends out of every month where you will let the mentors know about activities. So last weekend we had a 5K run. We do bike rides and we and we have um, activities over the course of the year. And then after um, a year, we have the, the celebration that we call to invite them all to be in our alumni network. So there's highs and lows and activities, but I think what makes us different is the dosage. Um, we get together one to two times per week with our youth. And then the activities. Um, most mentoring programs don't actually have an activity. So actually have an activity we're running or biking. And the combination of that um, with the uh, with the curriculum make us unique. And I think it also makes us sticky. And it also, we have to be a little bit smaller. I mean, we're, we're not, we're going to work with 100 to maybe 150 new kids per year. And some large organizations, they might work with more, but they're nowhere near the depth of um, older options. You have a golf outing uh, each year that uh, is part of the fundraiser. I know that uh, you have uh, many fundraisers over the year, and um, you rely a lot on on donations and people to help, not just as mentors physically, but also you know in terms of uh, others monetarily. Tell me about the golf outing, and I know there are still some spots open where if people want to help, have some fun, and uh, enjoy the day, they can uh, they can be a part of it. Absolutely, yeah. This year, June second is the date of our golf tournament, and we only have about eight spots left uh, for foursomes in our tournament. So we moved it from, um, we were doing it up north in, in Cambridge, and we moved it here into Lakeville, right in your neighborhood, Mike. And uh, it's been, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, uh, you know, we'll give you some stuff. We'll have a good time, but it's also uh, an opportunity for you to learn about our organization a little bit. We have a speaker at the beginning, a speaker at the end, and other than that, it's a, it's a fun day of golf and good food and, um, and good people. That's Daryl Thompson, the president of Boulder Options with operations in the Twin Cities and Rochester. 
That's going to do it for us for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.